0: City Jazz Sessions is about great music, arts, and entertainment. We are located in St. Louis, Missouri, and available to performance art lovers worldwide. Follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. You can email us at cityjazzsessions@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
1: in jazz land. This is Warren Harper, Magic Man 50, and this evening, my co-host, Leon Davis, and I are speaking with Rich Pullen. How are you, Rich?
2: Oh, I'm doing really good, and uh, I, wonder, I, I was wondering the same about both of you. How are you guys? We're doing great. I, I'm doing great anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Nice to hear that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm getting to know you a little bit from our conversation. So we're going to get right into the the meat of the thing, though. Give us a little background on you, where you're from, and how you got started in music.
2: Well, um, I am from New York City, actually, uh, the borough of the Bronx, where I was born in 1941. So I'm in my 82nd year right now. And... uh, I uh, got into music uh, considering what I just said. I got into music sort of late in life i was uh, I was in my teenage years and uh, I started playing a instrument known as the baritone horn, which is a small uh, looking tuba mm-hmm. and uh, from there uh, I Saw a movie called *The Glenn Miller Story*, and um, that changed my life. I came home from the movie theater that evening, and I told my folks. I said, "I've got to get a a trombone because uh, Jimmy Stewart as Glenn Miller. You know, he he looked uh, amazing. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he was all dressed in a very fancy, expensive suit, and he had that trombone resting on his uh, on his arm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, it, and it looked so good, and, you know, every occasionally he picked it up to play a little solo here and there, and his band sounded amazing. So that's what I decided that night. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a trombone player, and I want to have my own band. And guess what? It all came to pass. It took me it took me a few years, but within within the next uh give or take a year, ten years or so, mm-hmm. I became a, a band leader, uh, a very uh, competent trombone player, and um I started doing a lot of recording. Uh most of this happened in Europe. In in the Netherlands in Holland, so that's that's pretty much a, a short view of 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 how how my music career started. Sure.
1: So after you got this inspiration from the Glenn Miller story and uh, uh, who played Glenn Miller now? Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. I guess he had a lot of charisma then, huh?
2: Oh man. They couldn't have picked a better actor to play Glenn Miller than, than Jimmy Stewart. I wouldn't know who, who that could be anyway.
1: Yeah, so you switched from baritone horn to trombone. Immediately.
2: Immediately.
1: <laughs> then you continued your studies in music
2: and got to be a better player. And Oh, yeah. Not well, um, I have to give my folks a lot of credit at this point because... Uh, my dad uh would bring home a lot of records he would he would bring home uh uh every friday he, he would bring home a bunch a bunch of records
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um and i couldn't wait for friday to roll around cuz I, I knew i was going to be getting some more records and i began listening to uh, uh all kinds of people, um, Glenn Miller's band, uh, Benny Goodman's band, Artie Shaw, and then of course the Basie band and Duke Ellington, uh, very inspiring to a young, young guy, and uh, I just went from there, I just kept on following my nose and trying to behave myself, which wasn't always easy.
1: Yeah. Most of those artists you mentioned, uh, I grew up listening to cause my dad would play the same records. And so yeah. I know the type of music you're talking about. Yes. So you're Highly inspired by those artists. Then you dug in and, and got your education, became a great player. Then what opportunities started to come first?
2: Well, um, it was funny cause, um, by the end of my senior year of high school, uh, I didn't have any set plans, and then my mom found this agency in our neighborhood that more or less found a, a college for you, and uh, they she found me a college which was located in Mississippi, of all places, and The reason we picked that one, I had a few that were interested in me, but I picked uh, the college in Mississippi because they seemed to be a little more interested than the others. So Mm -hmm. that that made the decision uh, easier. And so I went down to Mississippi in September of 1959. The first thing that happened down there was I met a guy who was like the most famous musician uh, in that part of Mississippi. His name was Dalton Smith. He had just graduated from school in the previous year, June of uh, 58, and uh, he he went straight to Stan Kenton's band. That that that's no easy easy feat yep. for uh, most college musicians, but this guy, he played like like nobody. He was that good, and so that's all I heard about when I hit hit town was Dalton Smith, Dalton Smith. And then the most amazing thing happened. Lo and behold, he shows up at school just on a break, the Kenton band had a break, and I don't know, I guess he, he decided he was gonna, you know, visit school, maybe, you know, do a little bragging, which he was entitled to, and, uh, and there he was, big, big, tall guy with a, with a, with a blonde crew cut, nice looking man, he looked like, uh, if he wasn't a, great trumpet player. He could have been a, a linebacker or a fullback for a pro football team. He was big. He was big and, uh, you know, um, when he was ready to go back uh, on the Kenton band, I don't know, about a week or so later, we gave him a party, a send-off party, and uh, we we we, we, get, we hosted it at a, at a club, uh, you know, in, near near the school. And uh, we all brought our horns, and we had a little jam session. And he came up to me before we were all ready to head off, uh, you know, home and so forth. And he said, man, he says, you sounded pretty good. Where would you say you were from? I said, well, I'm from New York. Oh, man, that's perfect. He says, look up so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. And And it came to pass that I did that. I looked up uh, these people. And before I knew it, in uh, 1960, towards the summertime, I, uh, I got a chance to do a rehearsal with Charlie Barnett's band. And then from that rehearsal... Uh, one of the trombone players also said, Man, you sound good. So he says, Would you be interested in uh in a gig with the Tommy Dorsey band? <laughs>
0: wow. I said, You gotta
2: be kidding me now. You gotta be putting me on. You know, who would who wouldn't be interested in uh in that? So it that came to pass too. I uh I auditioned for, for the Tommy Dorsey band. Mm-hmm. And was hired by Warren Covington. Tommy had passed passed away a couple of years before, oh. and Warren Covington was fronting uh, the band. He was a brilliant trombonist too, mm-hmm. uh, like Tommy was. And so uh, I showed up one night to audition, and he hired me. And That's we the... left we left on a tour that same that same evening. What? yep he, he, said are... we're, he, he said we're leaving uh, from the Plymouth hotel at midnight he says be there
1: wow
2: and and I still had to bring my folks car home mm-hmm. pack, pack, pack a bag and then head back in the in the in the opposite direction towards New New York City and get there by you know midnight I got there at 10 to 10 to twelve wow. 10 minutes Ten minutes to spare.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So you were how old then? About? Eighteen. Eighteen years old. On tour instantly with this with the Dorsey band, one of the greatest bands out there at the time. I'm so it was excited.
2: it was the greatest. Yeah. Wow.
1: And so how long did this tour last
2: about? Uh it it was a couple of months. And um and then uh instead of uh I don't know. Doing something else um, through uh, the wife of the lead alto player, who was a singer, hmm. she recommended me uh, to, to to her agent, and found out that Johnny Long hap- happened to need a trombone player right r- right away. His trombone player was getting drunk every night, so I was hired immediately to go to go on Johnny Long's band. Warren gave me his his uh permission the green light to to do that and he told me I could always come back to his band anytime I I wanted to which I took him up on about 7 years later I played with him again in 1967 briefly So were you
1: uh about the youngest guy in the band at that time
2: I was the youngest Yeah how did the guys treat you Um that's a good question. Uh, you know, I have to say that, you know, they they were all pretty nice. Uh, some were nicer than, you know, than others, sure. but nobody nobody was nobody treated me poorly, let's put it that way. Everybody was nice and supportive and uh, and especially uh, Warren Covington. This guy was he was an amazing guy. Like I said, he was a brilliant trombonist. Uh, he also sang amazingly, beautiful voice. Okay. And and he could have been a leading man in in any Hollywood movie. That's how nice looking he was. You'll see you'll see some pictures of him, Warren Covington. Hey, pretty, sir, yeah, pretty amazing guy. And he liked me. That was the most important thing to me. So now being underage,
1: did you ever have any issues getting in and out of the the clubs or did you do clubs?
2: <laughs> that's that's an excellent question. Actually you you kinda read read my mind because on that very first uh bus trip that night, the night I auditioned, um on the way up up the freeway or wherever we were going, Warren came and sat down next to me. And he said, because I was, not only was I 18, but I was baby faced. I had, I had, believe it or not, now you see this face. But my 18 year old, my 18 year old face was a, a baby face. Sure. I didn't even look 18. And he came up to me and said, listen, if anybody comes up to you out on any any of these gigs, and says, "How how old are you?", you tell them twenty three. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Uh, believe it or not, nobody ever asked asked me my age. I don't know why, because I sure did look look young. But yeah. um, I guess I you know I guess people figured if if this guy's got a job playing with this band, he must be okay, you know? Yeah. So they left me alone. I, I I wasn't bothered by anybody.
1: Yeah, you were a VIP, man.
2: <laughs> you can say that again. Wow.
1: Okay, so moving on uh, from there, what, what happens next? Where do you go?
2: Well, um, so from 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 those bands i I played with with other bands and um I was good through uh up through about the middle of nineteen sixty four Then Uncle Sam put his claws in me and uh he grabbed me and I wound up uh playing in a uh wound up playing in a military band. And that and spent the most of my two years was spent over in uh Germany with a with a with a infantry division band. Uh-huh. It wasn't it was not the greatest band, but it was it let's put it this way, it was better than not playing at all. So gotcha. thank goodness.
1: You have anything, Leon?
2: Well, uh,
0: I was curious, um, what was your first paychecks like? What, you know, were they paying you well? Were they you know, just uh, giving you beer money? How, how did that work?
2: Well, that, that's an, another really good question because backstepping back to that first night with Warren Covington and auditioning and being hired, I was so excited at that very moment that I was being hired to go on this band and actually leave to go on tour uh, that night, that the only thing that I could think of at that moment was to get the heck out of there and get in my folks' car and start driving back to Long Island, you know, because I didn't want this guy to change his mind. So, you know, I didn't even ask, what what the gig paid, I didn't, I just thanked him, and did an about face, and headed, headed to my, to my folks car, got in the car, and, and drove back to Long Island, took me about, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes to, to get home, and then I, I really didn't have much time to get that suitcase packed, she Mom had to even wash some clothes and iron. I don't know how it all came together. But somehow, they got me onto the Long Island Railroad in enough time to make it to the city, New York City, and get to this hotel. And I made it in, with 10 minutes to spare. Wow. Yeah.
1: It wasn't like you had a cell phone. You could call them up and, and say, hey, mom Oh, no,
2: no. No, 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 no such thing. But uh, uh, to answer you, you know, your question, uh, I didn't, I didn't even, I would. It never even entered my mind to ask how much I was going to be paid. And to answer the question a little better, you know, when I was, when I did start to get paid, paychecks. It wasn't. It wasn't a lot of money. I think it was something like a hundred or a hundred and fifteen dollars a week, hmm. which, for nineteen sixty, was not that bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, a different economy back then, of course. Yeah, I
2: I actually did very very well, you know. And if he would have said to me, "Listen, man." You know, you sounded good and everything, and I do. We do have a, a chair for you, but I got no more budget. I can't pay you anything. You still interested? I would have said yes. <laughs> I would. I would have. I would have taken taken the gig regardlessly. But that that wasn't the case. I did get paid, not much, but sure. You know.
0: So uh, I guess in connection with that. Uh, you know, having been in the industry for so long, and then having you know started out um, and getting paid uh, not on a uh, royalties type situation, is that you, Warren? No. Oh. No, I
2: turned it. Off. I turned it off.
0: Oh, okay. Because um, Warren likes to play music, and so I. I <laughs> I didn't mean to be accusatory if that's what I was
2: but in the middle of, in the middle of an, of in an interview. Of an interview. Sure. Um, uh,
0: so you've seen the industry change a lot, especially as far as, um, pay and, uh, uh, what, what was the royalties like? So I guess there's a two part question. What were the royalties like at that time? And, um, you know, what was the, what was the environment like as far as the industry well, itself?
2: Yeah, well, um musicians uh didn't get royalties at all back in back in the day. So, you know, royalties were reserved if if you were a writer, you know, mm-hmm. and and you got lucky. You had to be not only be a writer, but you needed to get lucky and land a writing gig for somebody and not only that but that song or those songs that you wrote needed to get recorded and somehow you know maybe not a hit record but something good had to happen with that recording otherwise you didn't get anything anyway mm-hmm. so um other, otherwise um it was it was uh well I can tell you this. Here's here's the main difference. And I tell this to young musicians whenever I do a seminar or you know, teach a class or so, you know. I tell them, listen, the, the main change that that, that that I saw was when I started in 1960, I was 18. And I got hired to play on a Leading band. Mm -hmm. Now that you know, um, even though that was relatively uncommon, it was not impossible in that time. So as a trombone player, I could I could get hired, and and get a gig, and and that's and that's what I did. Like I said, I went from Warren's band to Johnny Long's band. And then uh, I played in a in a very very good band after that, the lesson Larry Elgarts band. They were hot in uh, 19 uh, uh, about 1962, mm-hmm. and uh, now that's a, it, that turned out to be an interesting story right there because actually I was hired by Larry Elgart. He was the better of the of the two brothers as far as musicians were concerned and he had the better better band although they were they were both very very good if you hear that band you you'll be impressed uh and uh so I, i so larry started a brand new chapter of his band in 1962 and he had auditions and I got hired to play first trombone. By that time, you know, two years later, after I started, I picked up some gusto, some, you know, some experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, my chops were good. I was always a good reader. And so, you know, I was ready for that gig with the Elgart band. So um, so I got I got hired to play first trombone. About a week into the tour, the manager of the band um, said uh, he was leaving the band and he recommended me Excuse for... Me. Um, recommended me for manager. Oh. Oh. And Larry, Larry went along with it. I was 20 at that point. I was just shy of my 21st birthday. And... So here I am now playing first trombone and managing the band.
1: All oh, at 20.
2: At at age 20 and it keeps going because in November of 62, a month after my birthday, 21st birthday. I my one of my first assignments as manager was to hire the band to play a studio recording session, and I hired every player on that session. Some of these guys were famous, very famous, like George DeVivier was a bass player, and Barry Galbraith was a guitar player. Larry didn't use his whole road band uh, on that session. He used me, he used the first trumpet player, Tom Perello. And he he used um, hang on one second I apologize hey Josh I'm on I'm on the radio right now I'm doing an interview can I call you right afterwards I will thank you man that was my son and uh, no anyway uh, so um, you know there I was 2021 20, and I hired the band to play on uh, on an album that's still available if you go to youtube and you look up uh, keep on keep moving you'll find the entire album 12 cuts and that was the session that that I did and I was 21 years old and 1 month at that point hmm. wow yeah and from there, it kept on, kept on getting better, man. I played with, uh, I played with Woody Herman's band. And uh, I played with a lot of bands. And, uh, and I got hired to play in Clark Terry's very first big band in, uh, in the summer of 1967. Uh, we played at the Half Note, a very famous jazz club in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh now that band was incredible. You had uh Zoot Sims and Al Cohn, Phil Woods and Gene Quill and Danny Bank was the sax saxophone section. Wow. It's about as good as it gets. And yeah. uh big names. Yeah, I was I was uh, playing first trombone and in 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 my section was a a very uh wonderful musician a young lady by the name of melba liston Mm -hmm. she was a she was a very good trombone player but she was you can believe this she was even a better arranger she was famous already for her arrangements matter of fact on that band on that gig we played a lot of her her music so wow so yeah
0: so you've had an opportunity because you've been in the industry for so long, you've had yeah. a lot of, uh, uh, opportunities to look at how music has changed.
2: Yes, I have.
0: Cause, uh, you know, you don't hear a lot of big band anymore. It kind of has fallen. It, it's kind of a niche. Uh, yeah. now. so, so how, explain how going through that, you know, what was some of the, um, the mindsets of the people. Uh, dealing with that, and how, how did you deal with that change?
2: Well, um, well, how I uh, eventually dealt with it was—you um, have to understand that by this time, I played with so many good bands. I became a pretty good trombone player, good enough that I had to, you know, as you as you're alluding to, I had to make a, a change. I had to change directions. Mm-hmm. And the direction that I chose was studios. I chose to, because other than big bands, a studio was the only place you could make a good living. That's it. That's the only place that existed around uh, 1967, 68. You remember I said that I, I tell young young musicians the main difference was in 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 that in the 60s um, I was able to earn a living playing in one big band or another and that's not possible these days mm-hmm. now here's here's an irony uh, that I have to I have to introduce this irony because you're right about the big bands more or less uh, dying out, but here's the here's the irony. Today there are way more, even more big bands than there ever were. Now you probably you're probably are wondering that doesn't make any sense. Well, here's why it makes sense, because uh, the music the big band music never never went away the jobs went away the jobs disappeared but the music didn't disappear it even got more uh more fervent you know more more uh musical more interesting and around uh i don't know i'm going to say late 60s, maybe 1970, two musicians changed the whole topography of the jazz world. And they were Clark Terry and Stan Kenton. Both of those guys decided that there was one big thing missing in jazz, And that was the educational uh, influence of jazz in schools. So both of these guys introduced jazz into the colleges. They did it almost simultaneously with one another. I don't say they planned it that way, but that's just how it came out. And uh, yeah, go ahead
1: what 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 part of the country do you think
2: uh this happened in uh first uh, was it? it 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 was definitely you know some somewhere in the east it wasn't i don't believe it was the west okay the west i think the west came came later
1: right
2: but uh I can tell you this that i i just mentioned that i'd played with clark's uh that was his first very first big band in 1967 at the half-note. And then I went over to Europe for seven years and stayed in touch with Clark. He's a guy, once you're in contact with him, you always stay in touch with him. I was in touch with him up to and including his passing in 2015 at 95. We were in touch for 55 years. And that included... Every time he came to Europe in the period that I was over there, the seven years, he always sent me a postcard, a letter, and and, or called me when he got to Europe and hired me to play with him in Europe. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I got back home, I left Europe finally in 74, One of the first things that happened was I got a phone call from Clark uh, and he hired me to go go on tour with his band. Now, now here's the difference between the 1967 and the 74 band. Mm -hmm. Now, here it is, 1974. And where were we playing? We were playing at colleges and universities. That's it. That's all we did. Went from one college to the next, to the next. I remember playing a a gig at the University of South Carolina with Clark and the big band. And uh, I ran into two musicians that I'd been in college with the short time I was in college. Mm -hmm. These guys were the the directors of music at, at University of South Carolina. And they said, no, that couldn't be. Is that you, Rich? I said, yeah, here, here I am. And uh, so, yeah, you know, um, by that time, by the mid 70s, uh, academic jazz had was coming into its own. And then from there, I mean, we're just talking about the two pioneers dan kenton and clark terry Mm -hmm. but after that every good musician in in the country in the world that was that was that was good and a you know a smart musically good good musician started getting getting into uh, educational jazz that was it and 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 it stuck it stuck so where I'm going with this is that back to the big bands and how uh, big band uh, popularity dwindled, but but there were more big bands than ever, and that happened because of academics. Mm-hmm. That's how all the, all the big bands started materializing. Okay. They 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 materialized through the, some of the colleges that we mentored, that we tutored, that we taught at. Now they had their own bands, and they were, you know, starting to get into another generation. Already, it doesn't take long. So I was going. So that, yeah. So that stuck. That stuck, and now today, here we are in the 2020s. And man, you have hundreds of big bands all over the place, and one's one's better than the next. I'm telling you, it's a, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I was I was so. Uh, you,
0: you had talked about how, um, you, you know, you were doing jazz at, at colleges. Do you feel yeah. like the the doing doing that and and and, and adding jazz to, jazz to colleges kind of helped uh jazz along or was was it a situation that it just helped get uh, jazz uh, maintain its status until jazz itself started to catch on more you, well you know, you know that's
2: that's a very excellent question wonderful question and it reminds me that when i was living in Europe. So we're backtracking now okay. into the late 60s, very early 70s. And I remember being at a get-together, you know, with some friends at one of their homes, and we were sitting out outside. I guess it was summertime, and we're having a drink or something, sitting on this guy's terrace. It was a nice house. And I remember saying something like, you know what's gonna happen. It hadn't happened yet. Not to my knowledge. Well what's gonna happen is we're gonna create this generation of musicians is going to teach the next generation. And that generation is gonna teach the next one. And I said from this point on it's just gonna be one generation of musicians teaching the next generation that's how jazz is going to that's how that's how jazz is going to turn out it's going to be a teaching thing and you know um so to try to answer your question that's what did happen um so we you know we lost the uh, work influence of of, of uh, big band jazz, but we picked up a, a sort of an excellence in musicality. Anyway, we 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 developed that that big band music up a couple of notches into a much higher degree of musicality. So right now. If you go anywhere around the country you go to like the, a school like North Texas State, mm-hmm. which is uh, one of the one of the pioneer schools that started in the beginning which I was talking about a little while ago and uh, you'll hear you'll hear a band. I, as a matter of fact, I recommend it to you guys and I recommend it to the listeners go over to YouTube and look up North Texas State. And you you'll be amazed you, because you know you've never heard a better big band in the in, in the uh, professional ranks and uh, you know um, back in the day or whenever this band is stands in a class of their own. But just as I say that, there's a bunch of schools like that. You can look up pretty much any college. University of Illinois, University of Michigan, University of uh, uh, UCLA, USC. I mean, there's so many good college bands, and these these people that are in the bands are going to get their degree. Some of them, some of them get a degree every year, and they go off in, into a new direction. And they get involved with another band and another college. And you can multiply that, I don't know, by hundreds or thousands going into the ranks of teaching professionals in jazz every year. And that's what jazz is. It's one big uh, teaching ground.
0: Sure, sure. So one of the things I like to ask um, uh, musicians when they come on, because most of them have done the traveling, which seems to be kind of a, um, initiation into being a better, uh, music musician, uh, you know, yeah. what was being on the road like for you, especially from a young age, because, you know, you, I'm, you've seen the, the hotel chains change, um, you know, the, the, the quality of the, the ends, the more amenities that they offer, you know, right. what, what was that kind of like?
2: Well, um, when I first started out, I remember uh, a hotel room was five dollars for the night. And uh, and um, when I became manager, I told you I was manager of the Elgart band. Uh, the hotels gave me a free room every night as manager because I was bringing the band to their hotel. I could have brought it to any hotel, but I brought it to their hotel. So as, as a courtesy, I got a free room and as a good guy, you know, I never, I never, you know, used that manager thing with the musicians. No, I never did that. I was just plain old rich, the trombone player. Right. Right. And, uh, but what I did do was because my room was free, I would take a couple of them, at least one, but maybe even two, to stay with me That every night. I'd pick a couple of different guys. And so they had a free, free night. The hotels, in pretty short order, started going up in price, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the time I'm talking about was still the older, you know, big, like high-rise hotels, kind of brick brick buildings that you know that older look. Um, the new the new you know the new architecture started coming in into place, I guess in the mid 60s to late 60s. Certainly by 1970 we start, you started getting the more modern hotels. Of course, the prices went up dramatically from that point on of course so you know um and that that was another deterrent for the business because you know you couldn't you couldn't pay the musicians enough for them to be able to afford the, the raises in in rates and stuff you know that caused a uh that, that caused some some you know concern among the band leaders and so forth, agents, bookers, that kind of thing, because it was becoming increasingly more difficult to keep a band out there. And whereas everyone did, let's say okay, you know the musicians, mm-hmm. uh, the dance halls, uh, the band leaders, the agencies, everybody had to make a buck. Right.
0: Great. So you you traveled all over Europe. uh, Yes. And you you got married in Europe. Holland. Holland. Um, So so there's always this. um, I don't know. You can call it a romantic notion. You can call it. uh, um, Yeah. uh, Yeah, that's right. The idea of you know you. people playing in the band and they they go home with a different girl every night and that kind of stuff. Yeah. What what was your life like? What was your personal life like, you know, during this time?
2: Well, um you know, it's yeah, you know, you're right about that, but I don't know um I don't know if it was my seriousness, my age or you know, lack of experience of what, as far as girls are concerned. I don't recall having a girlfriend for a long time. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm trying, yeah, I know I had at least one. Uh, I remember a very, very pretty young lady from Ohio. We were, uh, and I also remember another very pretty young lady from Virginia, I think those were my, my only two girlfriends in the time before I went to Europe. When I went to Europe and I met my wife almost immediately, she turned out to be a recording producer for the Philips Company. And I played, uh, I played almost immediately upon getting to that part of Holland, I, I immediately played a recording session with a, with a Dutch guy who was pretty famous He's famous in Holland. He was also famous in the States. He introduced, uh, oh man, oh. He introduced Herbie Mann, and he also introduced, uh, oh God, a famous female singer. I can't think of her name. And his name was Matt Matthews. And Matt had just uh, gotten sponsored by an Indonesian financier and he got he got his own record company now here he is has me in the studio i'm like 2 days in holland and i'm playing a session already and that kicked that kicked my career off because the next day the word got all around the recording community and my phone was ringing the next day Wow. I, I was getting hired on on sessions right away. <laughs> you so know,
1: was it being in the business, how you met her, or was
2: it that's through some other? No, it, through, it was through Matt. Matt uh, used that studio, and she was the she was the producer. And um, you know, I knew that that I knew that that session was going to be one of my most seriously important gigs of my career. I knew I had to go into that studio, and play my ass off. That's it. And you know, I like to think that I did. You know, I think I did. And uh, and from there on, you know, everything went my way. I, I got the woman. I got the gig. <laughs> girl was icing on the
1: cake huh? yeah
2: and the cherries and 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 a couple of others, a lot of whipped cream and uh yeah you know okay. so uh,
0: you got um, a kid. one of the, one of the things that uh, you you mentioned um is women in the, you know the music industry and I'm sure uh, yeah. at that time there probably weren't a lot of women in in uh, music. Well, no, no, 1960s. no, no,
2: that's 1960s. true, I mean, I, I can tell you, I can tell you for sure that in Holland, in 1968, other than my wife and two other female producers, there were three female producers in Holland at that time, my wife and two other women, hmm. but there were no, no female musicians, none. I cannot recall one uh, lady musician. Now that may have been different in uh, you know in New York or L.A., Chicago. I don't know. I I wasn't there then. I was in Europe. Mm-hmm. There, there were no no lady musicians that I recall over over in Holland working.
0: Mm-hmm. So was uh was you know being in the music industry was that a source of Contention with your wife at the
2: time? Oh, not at all. No, because she was she was she was in the business. She was a producer. Did she? Did she you was. And she her was right together? there. She she was right there in the studios. Yeah.
0: Did did she?
2: And, did you and her have an opportunity to work together too? That's what I'm talking about. We always worked together. Oh, okay. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. We met. We met on a on on a gig that I had. This guy Matt Matthews. Used her studio, and used her actually as producer of that first session that I did. So, you know, and I played very well. I mean, I, you know, I I don't mean to you know brag or anything, but there were there were no trombone players in 1968 that could play trombone like I would, like I did. Mm-hmm. I could play higher, faster, slower, lower. You know. You name it, and uh, so you know that's why my phone started ringing. Cause, and she she started, you know, she developed a pretty quick interest in me, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and before before I knew it, she was she was pregnant, <laughs> and that's how my son was born. Uh, the fellow that just tried to call me. Sure. He was born 12 days before the end of 1968, 13
1: days. Okay. Wow. Yep. So I'm thinking that after all these years, you've met some great artists, producers, you've traveled around the world. Yeah. uh, Looking back, what are some of your fondest memories, would you say?
2: Well, that one, you know, with uh, with Matt and uh, my wife Ada, and you know, finding out that I was going to become a daddy before the end of the year, okay. and actually, I know this is going to sound impossible, but I had a premonition in January before I went over to Holland. I went to Holland in February mm-hmm. on the on the subway train in New York in January. I had a premonition that I was going to have a a little boy before the end of the year. And wow. like I said, I made it by 13 days. How's that?
0: Were yeah. you a st- superstitious
2: person? Not superstitious, no.
0: No? I mean, no. some some people have routines that they have to go through before they do their concert or before they do yeah. play their No, I never or...
2: did. No. no. I never had that. I did have uh like I said I had visions, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like like this one I'm telling you about that I was going to have a a son sometime that year. I didn't know how, where, why, with who, but I did I did know that I would have a son but by the end of the year. And like I said he was born December 18th, 13 days before the end of the year. So I just just made it.
0: Really? <laughs> so so um, you were married at the time, right? Yeah. And, and then in your statement, you just said you didn't know by who. So should I, should I pursue that line of question longer or just let it go?
2: No, no you don't have to let it go. I just want you to understand. <laughs> no, I'm just. What I, I'm what just, I, what, what I meant, you know, yeah,
0: it's, I, it was, was just a, it, meant to be a joke.
2: Oh, that's okay. You know, uh, I was in New York city and, uh, now here, here it, all this came to pass. I didn't even know in January that I was I was going to Holland the next month. Mm-hmm. I left New York February 14th, 1968. Mm-hmm. Much to my much to my mother's uh, ultimate chagrin, because I left on Valentine's Day. I never I never thought of that. I never planned it that way. But mm-hmm. there it was, and but I know I made it up to them, uh, more or less in spades. Sure. From that point on, you know. So.
0: Was there anything in in your career that that you've wanted to do that uh, the opportunity didn't present itself, or it didn't uh, you got started in it and it didn't
2: pan out the way you thought it would? No, no. I actually, I thought. You, you're asking very very good questions and actually I thought of that subject that you just mentioned uh, I've thought of that many times you know um, but you know I started out as a, as a trombone player um, I, I, I held on to the I held on to the horn even when I started arranging in 68. I still played trombone for quite a number of years after that, and then, you know, in the in the Dutch period, as you know, I started arranging, uh, composing, writing songs. Uh, I, I I added lyrics a few years later and got serious with lyrics, um, and. Um, I'd always been a singer. I, I hadn't mentioned that before. Oh. But I started singing when I was two years of age. And I, I people loved me, you know, when I was a kid. But, you know, I always got compliments. Oh, you're so good, you know. I remember singing, uh, uh, you know, Al Jolson's songs. You know, this tune, Mammy. My man, the sun shines east, the sun shines west, that I love best. You know, I was singing that, and, and and the way I was singing it, the way Al sang, sang it, because he got down on one knee. So when I performed it, I performed it at theaters and stuff. I'd get down on one knee, this cute little, little boy, I don't know, four or five years of age. And I would sing Mammy on one knee. That killed them. That killed the audience. So, the singing kept going and kept going. And the songwriting and the lyrics and producing and trombone playing. And so, but, you know, I don't know. You know, at some point, I'd accomplished every job. That you can think of in music, in popular music, and not only that, but I'd started in you know mainly in jazz, and I was able to cross the cross the line, cross the street, and get into pop. And uh, as I said, I, I even wrote a country song, and I, I got into all these these new genres, and I I, I you know. I like that, you know. I I, I was like kind of kind of narrow-minded to begin with, but jazz jazz is jazz is an okay thing to be narrow-minded in. If you're going to be narrow-minded in any genre of music, let it be jazz, because that you know because that is the highest form of musicality. It's got the highest form of music in it. And, you know, all the chords and and all the harmonies are very sophisticated. It really takes a a very good musician to not only comprehend it, but to go another step further and be able to recreate that music in your own style. And so I learned to do all those things. And I have... uh, I have recorded examples of, of that, of me involved in all the different genres of music, you know, as, as one thing or another, singer, player, writer, producer.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so I only got to have a couple more questions. Uh, one is, of all the hats that you've worn in music, which one do you think
2: um, probably is your favorite? Well, it would have to be, uh, it would have to be writing because, uh, writing encompasses everything. I mean, uh, you know, I couldn't have, like, I stopped playing trombone, uh, not because I wanted to, but because my teeth w- went sou- south, south. <laughs> And I, 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 you know, I got a bad, bad mouth and I couldn't, I couldn't play anymore. Okay. That's how that happened. So um, I, I, I was able, because I had started writing over in Holland in 68, when this happened, I was able to make the transition smoothly, right away. I moved into writing and never looked back you know, and I write, like I said, I write all kinds of things, I I was speaking of Clark Terry, I wrote Clark Terry, um, something called soliloquy for Clark Terry, it's with a big orchestra, Mm -hmm. and, um, I wrote it for his 90th birthday, and I flew down to Arkansas, where he was living, at Mm -hmm. the time, to present him with a CD, and, um, he said, "Man, he says that's a, this is the greatest honor that he says he that he'd ever gotten was you know uh, a musician that he knew would write a theme for for him to become 90 years of age." And I said, "You know, I'm so happy to hear you say that, Clark. I couldn't I couldn't think of anyone else that I that I that I would do this for. You know, you're the only." musician in existence, you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and then, and, and, and uh, I also did did it for a trumpet player when he turned 90, a guy by the name of Yuan Mm Racy, and um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote his own, his own song, and I wrote Clark's own song, I said to Clark that that evening on his ninetieth birthday it was December fourteenth, two thousand ten. I said, I said, look, man, you stick around at least another year, and I'll write lyrics to this thing. And sure enough, I wrote lyrics to the same song, and my daughter recorded it for him at ninety-one and 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 he called listen man he called her he called her on the phone first first thing he did was he said to me how do you know so much about me that you could write these kind of lyrics i said my answer was very simple i said how because i love you that's how Wow. And you know I couldn't have been more honest than that because it's the truth. This guy was. Well, there's a line in the song. He, he, you know, he's a, he's a great musician, but he's a better man. You understand? I understand absolutely. You know, and that's and that's what I. That's what that's what I I came up with. You know, and he was he asked me. Before he called Brooke on the phone, I went down to Arkansas again when he was 91 to give him that record. And uh, how do you know so much about me? I said, well, you know, I love you. And, and that, that, that spread to in, interest and research and everything good about, you know, when you love a person. And uh, then he called Brooke and he complimented her. And he had done the same thing the year before with the with the trumpet player that played the first tune. He called uh, Gar Gary Gary Grant, and he complimented him. Oh, he he also said to Gary, "This is kind of cute." He says, "Hey, man," he says, "You played that better than." Every, any trumpet player I know, except one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you know who, which yeah, one it yeah, was, that was, right? That was easy to figure out. <laughs> yeah. He telegraphed okay. that one. That's, so, yeah. So I've so got that, one more question and then I'm, I, then I want you to, uh, okay. share about your daughter. Cause I know you're pretty proud of her. Yes. Um, how did you get in? Uh, I know you, you, you've made it your mission to um, give back what you've learned to, to, the, to children. And what right. prompted that? How did you get started with that? And how is that going for you?
2: Well, that started um, with Clark Terry, you know, in 1974. I told you that um, he had hired me when I came back from Europe to do a tour with his band. And that tour was exclusively colleges. And Clark sat, sat the band down one night. This is completely unlike him. He sat us all down. He said, listen, I'm not going to be around forever. So he says, I would personally appreciate it if you guys carry this, you know, what I'm doing, carry it on forward and i told him that night i went up to him and i called him ct i said ct you got my word okay as long as i'm alive on this earth i will do that and i i have i have done that um so i teach uh two levels of 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 students the one i'm kind of I guess you could say most proud of, is I teach the little elementary school kids the history of jazz. Uh, Brooke is a school teacher. She teaches elementary school music in Vegas. And every year, it's coming up soon. In February is, is uh, Black History Month. And I go to the school And I teach the history of jazz because, um, I don't know, I guess it's arguable, but I can't think of uh, a more important thing to attribute to the, uh, you know, to the black community is the invention of jazz. Can you? I, I can't.
1: Musically, Absolutely.
2: You know, um, so um, and then the other the other level of music that I teach is uh, the older the older children, um, high school s- seniors and college students. i just I just did a seminar with with my alma mater, the school I went to shortly in Mississippi. I, uh, I I spent uh, a session with them on a virtual basis on the computer teaching them a song that I had written called The 13th Journey. And they, they, they said they liked it so much they asked me to write it for their big band. Been in the process of doing since then. So uh, come... I don't know, probably April or May of this year, they should be, uh, they should be recording it. Right. I'll be very proud of that once it's uh, recorded. Sure. Okay,
0: so uh, unless you have something else, Warren, I'm, I'm going to let you talk about your daughter and then uh, add anything that you'd like um, as we close out the show.
2: All right, thank you very much. Well, Brooke, uh, I have three children. Uh, Brooke and another another uh, young lady are my daughters, and this fellow that that tried to call me Yasha, he's uh, my son. He's he's older than the two girls. I I I, I started another marriage and ha- had had them, and um, Brooke is the only one of the three that turned out to become a musician. Mm-hmm. Um. She uh, academically achieved three degrees. She got a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees in music. Um, Besides that, you know, and, and, and I know this sounds terrible, but I can't help it. I work with so many good singers in my career, but Brooke outshadows all of them. I, 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 you know, talking. To, we were talking earlier about imagining things. I imagine, and I've imagined this many times, I imagine Ella Fitzgerald coming over to me at some concert and saying, you know, Rich, Brooke is amazing. And I swear to you, that had circumstances gone a little differently and had she remained alive and Brooke, you know, singing and blah blah blah. I, I'm sure it I'm sure it would have happened. That's how good that's how good Brooke is. Brooke is amazing. I tried to get Brooke on stage with Barbara Streisand. I try to get her on stage with Mariah Carey. I try to get her on stage with Celine Dion. But None of them, I couldn't do it. They, they would, no, None of them would do it. You know, and I don't blame them. What's, what's for them to gain? They only stand to lose. And lose, they, they, they would have had that come to pass. So that's, you know, but she decided, you know, after I tried to promote her and her, her amazing voice for many years, She said, you know what, Dad, I'm going to turn to school, teaching school. And with her degrees and everything, she was ready. And now she's in her her fifth year, fifth or sixth year, as an elementary school music teacher. And like I said, every February, I go up to her school and teach her students the history of jazz. And I get a chance to not only teach uh, jazz history, but see Brooke in action. And I have to say this, you know, I was sort of resentful somewhat that she didn't go straight ahead into professional singing. But, you know, after I've seen the children react to her school teaching, I know she made the right decision. You know, she, she definitely did.
1: Yeah. What's your favorite song that Brooke sings?
2: Um, Well, um, I guess, I, you know, I know it sounds terrible, but I guess I don't have one. I guess any one of them turns out to be my favorite because they all have every single song. And it's probably at least about 20. They all have they all have a story to them. Well, name one that you're on. Oh well, I'm on all of them. I'm on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, if you go to my if you go to my website, mm-hmm. you'll uh, you'll have the opportunity to choose, like I said, out of about twenty twenty songs, and um, um, she did she did a song. Um, I wrote a song among many called loving you, loving you. That's probably going to, going to turn out to be, you know, my favorite. Okay. Yeah.
1: Good enough. That's all I got, Leon.
0: All right. Close this out, Warren.
2: And we're done.
1: Well, Thank you. By the way, thank
2: you for having me.
1: Rich Pullen. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, consider me a new friend. I, I like your music. Uh, let's stay in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon.
2: I hope so. I hope we, you know, I hope we keep in touch. Uh, I love your show. You. I've listened to uh, some of your older shows. They're excellent. <clears throat> I'm glad you're doing this. You're doing a, a very good service to the jazz community and I commend you for it. Both of you.
0: Thank you very much. We really appreciate you being here. I've enjoyed talking to you and I look forward to talking to you you know, again.
2: I hope in the near future. Absolutely.
1: Take care now.
2: Bye now. Take care, man. Take care, guys.
0: City Jazz Sessions is brought to you by St. Louis City Jazz, a 501c3 company dedicated to music education and appreciation. The CEO is Magic Man 50, and for more ways to connect with City Jazz Sessions, visit cityjazzsessions.wixsite.com st. Louis. The City Jazz Sessions team includes host, content director, and guest coordinator, jazz great Ronnie Barrage. Follow Ronnie at ronniebarrage.biz. Host, website designer, graphic artist, content director, and guest coordinator, singing sensation Leka. Discover more about Leika at lakamusic.com. Additional production services are provided by Lion's Den Productions. Go to thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe for more great content.